Welcome to Criminal Perspective, I'm Chris. On this episode, we're bringing you the second part of our two-part interview with convicted murderer and California death row inmate Richard Allen Davis. At the conclusion of the interview, we'll be joined by Dr. Chris Mahandi, a forensic psychologist out of California who breaks down exactly who and what Richard Allen Davis is. So stick around, listen to the whole episode. If you have some time, head over to patreon.com slash criminal perspective for additional weekly content. And also consider checking out classkids.org, K-L-A-A-S-K-I-D-S.org. And check out what they do as far as child protection and prevention against child abuse and exploitation and things of that nature. So head over to classkids.org, check that out. And without further ado, here is the second part of our interview with Richard Allen Davis. So going forward from there, you were in and out of prison quite a bit. You got a, a pretty significant criminal background. I think everybody knows that. Yeah, let's jump from Marlene and let's move forward. And uh, so leading yeah. up leading up to the Polly Class case, what was life like? Murder, kidnap, the internet shit about sexual shit. And the only thing, that, you know, like I told you before, you got the abstract of judgment. The only thing they charged me with was an attempted lewd act because they wanted to believe that that's what was why it happened. Now, they had sent the body all the clothing to that FBI DNA facility in Quantico, Virginia. And that doctor there proved that nothing happened. There was no evidence of any sexual attempt or, or, or anything, right? They got all that bullshit on the internet. You know, but go ahead. Can you, can you walk us through what exactly happened with that whole case, that whole situation that night? Bag. It's a 
alone, and it's got weed, but it's got all kinds of shit mixed into it. Crack, crank, uh, uh, a little bit of heroin, uh, who knows what, it's all mixture kind of shit. That's why they call it a body bag. That's the same thing that that dude River Phoenix smoked down in L.A. Outside the Viper Room when he fell out and died. They said he was smoking one of these body bags, that's what they call it. So I got one, and just like one in 68, when they first started smoking, came out with that PCP. It was called midweed back then. You know, you take a hit, put it out, see how high you get. Take another hit, see how high you get. You know, you just don't start smoking. The first time I smoked it, I smoked it until I couldn't even move. My friends had to help me home. So I take a hit off the stuff, put it out. I remember I took two hits and I thought, well, you know, I still feel pretty good, so I'll take another hit. And that's the last thing I remember. So, for a while. So, I don't know who I was talking to or whatever. But, uh, then I guess uh, I broke into the house. I thought it was empty or whatever. And, uh, shit happened. You know? What happened? Can you go into detail? Got rumors. They got they got rumors going around. It's Channel Seven News here that they heard that I owed money for drugs. The father owed money for drugs, and it was a drug debt deal. That's why that happened. And uh, is that is that is that what really happened? I never told. Hey, I never told my lawyers. I never told anybody why why things really happened because, you know, I still got my nieces and stuff are still out there and so, you know, I didn't want no shit coming down on them. But it ended up, uh, it was just straight kidnapped murder, man. It was, uh, so there was, there was no sexual aspect to it? You didn't? No, no, they proved that. They proved that. Like I said, you got the abstract of judgment. The only thing they could charge me with was attempted lewd act, and the jury found me guilty on it because they believed that was why. Why else? You know, I never told them why shit really happened. So they, why else? You know, all the other crimes happened behind that. Wanted to believe, you know, that, that was why. They had this, this jury instruction for that since they couldn't prove none of the other charges that there was any sex crimes or anything, the DA told the judge that all he had to do was prove that a brushing occurred for the attempted loot act. And, I mean, I couldn't deny it there was a brushing because I had tied him up. And what I tied the other two girls up too. So I told my lawyer to tell the jury, you know, why didn't he charge me with the other two girls with attempted loot act? I had to brush up against them to tie them up. So, you know, what's good for one should be good for everybody, right? But my lawyer didn't want to do that. So then I told my lawyer to tell the guys, on, tell the men on the jury that if they got any kids and they're down at the playground and kids fall down, better be careful how you pick them up. Because if you brush against them, they can get them charged too. But they didn't want to do that either. So that's when I, during deliberation, the guilt phase, I told, they had the stun gun built on me. You know what those are, right? Right, right. 50,000 volts and all that shit. 
Yeah, you get out of line, they basically just zap you to... Yeah, I just had that strapped on me, right? And so I told the bailiffs, and one of them had had a, had a clicker button for it. There's supposed to be another one sitting in plain clothes in the courtroom in the back. He had he had a clicker button, too. So I told them, look, you know, if the jury comes back guilty on this attempt to loot, I'm going to turn out the camera was right behind me to begin with. I was going to turn and flip the camera on. They told me, oh, you ain't got hard to do it. I said, yes. So I started taking bets. Now, while we're deliberating for the guilt, the media had left the microphone on on the camera, even though it was turned off. And they were listening to the conversation. They were down in the van down on the street listening to what the bailiffs and the other curtains court personnel were talking about some of the, the people in the courtroom, you know, about how they didn't like certain people and all this stuff. And uh, one of the, the other bailiffs from another court was walking by and the other bailiffs were talking and he recognized the voice, his friend's voice, and he looked in to see if they were in the van and he noticed these people had their headphones on they're listening to So he went up there and told them, hey, the microphone's on, these people are listening to you, man. So they wanted the cameras removed. But this was the judges. So instead of moving the camera out of the courtroom, they moved it into the middle aisle of the two sections of all the seats, right? So when I come back into court, the camera ain't behind me anymore. It's over in the corner, over by where the, the father and his, his dad and grandma, you know, the, his mother, some of them are sitting, some of the family members are sitting. It was right in front of my family, my sister and her kid. So we're sitting there, I'm standing up, and when they come back guilty on that, I'm sure you saw the photos where I turned and winked at the cameras, smooched, winked, and gave both fingers to them. My father was always getting up on now. The DNA lady approved nothing happened. He'd always get out in front of the courtroom, now after court, the cameras up, he raped my daughter, he probably sodomized her and all that. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, man. You know? He's seen all the reports I saw that nothing happened. The county coroner couldn't find nothing. The FBI lady couldn't find nothing. DNA lady. So why is this guy saying this stuff about his daughter? This shit didn't happen. You know, I guess probably just trying to gain sympathy or whatever. So, like I told when the car broke down on 15 Road, I was trying to get out of that ditch. And I walked her up the road. I walked her up the side of the hill. I guess she thought something funny was going to jump off. But I was just sitting her upside her because I didn't know who lived up there. So she tells me, just don't do me like my dad. Now, I told this to the, to the cops when I, when I finally decided to talk to him after four days. And they were denying me my attorney up there in the Ukiah. And I told, told him, look, I didn't know if it was something, that, you know, whatever, you know, to throw a person off. You know, I just know what was said to me. And I told him, you ain't got to worry. That's not what this is about. Just sit here, be cool, and I'll be right back. But she was far enough on the side of the hill to where when the cops did show up and pull me out of the ditch, you know, they, they kept saying, I kept looking over the side of the embankment. So I figured she'd come walking down the road. You know, with all the 
the lights and everything, right? And I was looking for a place to run, but she never showed up. And when the cops drove me out, pulled me out, they drove me down into town, then they had to go take off for uh, some drive-by shooting call. That's when I turned around and went back up there to park, and she was still sitting on the side of the road. But they wanted to believe that she was dead at that time. I guess the cops didn't want to feel bad about it. They didn't. I didn't tell them they should have died until later on down in Cloverdale. So, so no point did it ever happen. Yeah, okay, so there was no sexual assault, but you did kidnap her from the house. What was the point of kidnapping her from the house? You know, I ain't never told nobody. You know? Okay, so so let's let's wow. just say let's just say hypothetically, if there was a reason, what would it be? Yeah, yeah, we get what you're saying. Um, Channel Seven News, Channel Seven News believes they heard rumors that it was behind drug deals. So, okay, so if I'm hearing this right, if this, let's say hypothetically, somebody wronged you, you would take somebody out that was close to them. Well, somebody that on 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 behalf, yeah, on behalf of somebody. Washington up in her area. 
uh, I still owe them people. That's when you robbed the bank? Huh? That you're talking about when you robbed the bank? Yeah, yeah, well, I robbed a few banks. Yeah, I robbed the one in the snow up there in uh, Kennewick. We did a few robberies there in Oregon, all the way from uh, the Bay Area. That's when we kidnapped the uh, girl's oldest sister was gay. And her lover, her grandfather, died, and she inherited like 180 grand. She wanted to go straight to get her daughter back. And she owed money to other people for helping her out. She thought she just cut ties, so that's when I got involved with the girlfriend. Well, we had broke up, and she wanted my help, so we ended up. I ended up pistol whipping this rod and making her go to the bank and withdraw nine grand. That's how I got sent to prison in 85 for kidnapping Robert and Selena Vera. You know, I ended up getting 16 years. Because my lawyer argued, I told him I couldn't argue the burglary and the assault for the robbery. It was the kidnap. I didn't take her to the bank. So technically, you know, I didn't get. You know, I instigated the movement with the violent threats, but uh, my girlfriend drove her, my ex-girlfriend drove, my mother drove her to the bank. So my judge, my lawyer argued to the jury that normally a, a victim is taken from a less dangerous area to a more dangerous area. But in this case, it was completely different. She was taken from a more dangerous area to a less dangerous to a bank with all these people and she could have screamed at any time, you know, called for the cops and then have been over with because I wasn't with them at that time. I was at a whole other area parked in a car waiting for them to show up with the cash. And uh, so they found me guilty of 207 kidnapping, simple kidnapping, which at that time was only seven years. Two oh eight, which they were trying to get kidnapped property, that was a lie for Tom. I kind of got lucky and only got 16 and a half years with priors. The way sentencing was, you know, that's how I got out in '93. Richard, um, I know, I know you won't. <laughs> you know, you're a convict. You're not going to straight up admit to anything like that, but. Are there any other murders that, that you might be responsible for out there that are unsolved? That blood test, that warrant for the two, four tubes of blood that you got? Right, right. I do remember that. Okay, that was for three marijuana growers up north. Now, supposedly these guys, their gardens, what they call, when they grow all this weed, you know, two to five hundred plants in a, in a, in a clump. Call them gardens, right? Theirs got busted because they had that uh, marijuana eradication unit that they started out of this old broke down uh, uh, lumber company landing strip back in uh, uh, back behind the hills of Carbonville. So the rumor was these guys. So was that two or three marijuana growers? Okay. Three of them, okay. And these three guys, they got their, all their gardens got busted. So the rumor 
was they're going around ripping off plants from these other gardens from other people. Right? So they're they kind of knew who it was. So they were looking for somebody to go help get their shit back, right? Whatever they can get. So I mean, they found these three guys in, in their little cabin with their feet nailed to the floor and. Uh, you know, tortured a little bit, you know, cuts on them and, and hot sauce poured on them. And uh, they found four, you know, they used to sell these uh, plastic 55-gallon drums, heavy-duty plastic, right? And these people up, up north up there with bodies not only use them for watering their plants, you know, to fill them up and, and water the plants, but they would also dig holes, bury these, these barrels, and fill them up full of mud, cash, and seal them back up. And then put tarp and dirt over the top, right? And so they had their stash, right? So they found four areas dug up where I guess these barrels were, right? had cash or, or blood or whatever. So the cops came asking me about it. And I told them I didn't know nothing about it. Well, we heard that you were transporting and you knew these people and your name was given that, that you might have known how these people got their feet nailed to the floor and how, how they were tortured and, and killed. I said, man, I don't know nothing about it. So they never charged me and asked me about it, but they never anymore and then I had this case so when I got here in the AC they come pull me out and they told me you got nothing uh, for medical so medical for what so, I don't know we're just here to kind of chain you up take you over so alright so I pull me out off the yard in the AC come in the middle case chained up and the gun squad shows up they're going to escort me huh? what are you guys here for so we're taking you over I'm thinking, what the fuck's going on? So I get over there, and here's this fucking, that guy, he's the same guy that, uh, was the guy that, that I finally talked to on this case, him and the FBI agent. They got a warrant for four tubes of blood. I go, what the fuck? Four tubes of blood? Well, you know, the marijuana growers would want to get some blood. Oh, wait a minute, man. You guys already got my DNA on file. When I got released in 93, I had to get my DNA. So you guys got all that. So what do you need blood for? Are you going to go sprinkling around? Well, we've got a warrant. That's all we need. And they told me they weren't leaving until they got, got the fucking blood. So they tried getting the blood out of the arms, but this Filipino guy, he couldn't hit no veins. So I told him, why don't you just get the big test tube with the big horse needle? just hit the femoral artery on the inside of my thigh and get the blood that way. So that's how, <laughs> that's how they got the four tubes of blood. And that's what it was behind, right? But they never came back. So I guess whatever blood they found or whatever, you know, whatever they, I didn't match up to me or, or mine wasn't there, you know, so. The three marijuana growers, that, that case, is that familiar to you, if you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. I know who they're talking about. You know? Yeah. I knew other people up in that area of Rio Rio well. 
guys I used to transport blood for. I didn't know those guys at all. You know, they were just rip-off artists, you know. They wanted to get their little bit of money from other motherfuckers, you know, so. Yeah. You know, everybody, everybody got a price to pay, you know. And whoever done it, they always get a percentage of whatever's recovered, you know. Did, did, did they get paid pretty good? Have you ever used a hammer and some nails before? Do you believe so, the, do you believe the rumor? Hey, I'm just telling you what the rumor was. Do you feel any remorse for the murder of Polly Class? If you could go back, would you do things differently? Would no, she still I be got, alive? I, got, I, I don't have no remorse. I have no compassion. I mean, you got nothing for myself. Why do you think that is? Can you pinpoint what it was? So do you think if you would have had a better father figure and a mother present in your life, well, do you father, think? Hey, my father did us right. My father took care of me and my sisters. But he said, but you said he also abused you too, right? Well, only when I had to come to Only when I did shit. Just like when he, he bought that house down in Tacho, Florida, I got locked up down there. Right? Now, I don't know how they were raised, you know, but 
sure, you know, we've never been around them much. We were down there a few times with my mother when we were younger. So we get down there, and this old lady's telling my sister uh, how she ain't never lying. And she's, she's getting ready to just one about something. And my sister told her, if you touch me, I'm going to tell my dad. She goes, tell your dad. That's my son. I'll spank his ass, too. And my sister told her, you're lying. And my grandmother told her, I ain't never told a lie in my life. My grandmother, my sister told her, you're lying right now. So she went to go get a bar of soap to wash her mouth out with soap. And my sister's on the living room floor, and she's got her teeth dreaded, and my grandmother's rubbing a bar of soap across her teeth. And it was funny. I started laughing. That's crazy bitch. She has fucking willow branch behind the stove, grabs this willow bin, and cracks me across the back of the legs with it. For laughing. I told her, what, what are you doing? I ain't done nothing. For laughing. I grabbed a switch out of her head, and I tied it all up in the knot, and threw it out of her. Don't ever hit me with that thing if I ain't done nothing. She was stunned, right? I guess done, no kids. None of her kids, my father and them growing up, my cousins and all that, and I guess they just took this kind of beating. So she called her two other sons that were younger than my father and had a hail and this. They came down, big old motherfuckers. And they got me in a corner of the room and they told me, look, you know, that's our mom. You know, we ain't going to do nothing to you. We're going to let Raymond take care of you, my father. So my father came down that went to groceries. Like he told you every other weekend he showed me groceries. He got me in the living room and he's poking me in the chest with his fucking fingers. Tell me, oh, you're a tough guy. Oh, I ain't no tough guy, man. I just, I didn't do nothing. Don't matter. If she wants to stand there and beat you in a two-by-four, you take, you stand there and take it. And he hauled off and punched me right square in the chest because I wasn't agreeing with him. And he knocked me straight to the wall. To the, <laughs> I was, I was standing between the studs. Sheetrock, talking me straight out, I woke up, I came to my sister's bedroom, I went right through the wall from the living room to the house out there. And, you know, I kind of brought it on myself. The other times me and him had, had, had gone into shit, you know, and, and incidents, you know, I, you know, I always did something to bring it on myself. It wasn't like, you know, he just hauled off and started beating me. There was always something, I always did something. Well, my sister set me up one time. Because I used to clean the house and everything, the double-wide trailer on the property. And when he'd come home Friday, he'd check it. And if everything was clean, he'd give me 20 bucks to go downtown with my friends and, and, and spend the weekend down there. Well, he kept pulling in one weekend, one, one Friday night, and my sister just starts crying at the table and I tell him, what's wrong? She told me, I'm going to tell Dad you've been beating me all week long. I ain't even touch you. You ain't going nowhere tonight. You ain't going nowhere. Uh, this cold-ass bitch. So she comes in, and my dad, oh, what's the matter? Because uh, my other sister had died already, so this was his only daughter left. But Rick didn't beat me all week long, so he fucking nutted it up. So he grabbed me by the front of the shirt and backhanded me and knocked my jaw to joint. I had to go to the hospital again and said, see, my sister sent me up for this. So it wasn't like he just beat me to beat me. You know, there was some, always something going on. Right, right. And I, you know, he wasn't like that because I was taking, I was cooking and cleaning and doing all this bullshit for my sister. Right. Hey, be, before we get cut off, what are your thoughts on the three strikes law and being the 
I guess, quote unquote, golden boy well, for a lack of terms for that. Take... Okay, now they had the official criminal act all along. They didn't have to Right. Do you think? Do you think your Do you think your case was a political um, thing yeah, to? Yeah. Uh... Joining us now, we have Dr. Chris Mahandi. How are you, Dr. Mahandi? I'm great. Thank you, guys, uh, Chris and Andrew, for having me on your show. Um, it's a great topic today, and I can't wait to talk with you about it because I don't know if you know this, but years ago, I did a pilot for a show called Criminal Confessions, and Mark Kloss, the father of the victim, Polly, uh, was actually the host. And I got a chance to meet with him and uh, get his perspective. So I have some familiarity with the case from years ago to present day. We have a lot of experts and professionals come on to help us with analysis, and, and you seem to be a great fit for Davis. I mean, already, as you just said, you're very familiar with them, and, and you've you've done something in this vein before. So we really appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time to do this. So, I mean, by all means, let's jump into it and uh, just walk us through Richard Allen Davis. Richard Allen Davis, short and sweet version is an antisocial personality disordered individual, but he's the worst of the worst. He's what we refer to, there's about 15% of antisocial personalities who actually qualify for the more severe designation as developed by uh, the psychologist Robert Hare of psychopath. Mm -hmm. And that is a particularly toxic, malignant type of individual. The jails, prisons are filled with antisocial personalities, but it's a very... Um, small population that are actually the worst of the worst, about 15%. He's one of them. He's psychopathic, he's narcissistic. And with that comes along a lot of credibility issues with a person like this. But, you know, his level of detachment, his opportunism, his deceptiveness, his lack of sincerity, his willingness to misdirect, and his complete and total lack of regard for the feelings and experiences of others, including their suffering, is noteworthy. He is at the top, or if you will, the bottom in, in regards to all these things. Would you say from, from your professional opinion that um, Richard Allen Davis, uh, he, he does talk a bit about suffering for, uh, suffering some physical abuse at the hands of his mother when he was a child, as well as his father, but he kind of interprets that as I had it coming. But with his mother, it, it's not so much like that. Would you would you say that 
in this sense, Richard Allen Davis would be of the primary psychopathic type or of the secondary psychopathic type? If you're meaning primary by was he born bad, uh, I'd yeah. say he's in that category because, you know, you have a number of siblings apparently that were, you know, had come up through the same family. And as they say in the field of psychology, you know, and as people know, every family's different for every single member that grows up through it. But nonetheless, you know, his other siblings had these experiences and he himself admits that he was different than his siblings. So there was a recognition on his part of that. And, you know, in terms of what he said, he experienced at the hands of his mother and certainly with his father, he said he had it coming. You know, he kind of downplayed it. And, you know, I'd, I'd probably take some of that at face value. Um, he was acting out. He was already experienced with juvenile hall, as he indicated in your interview in eighth grade, you know, and that that prank that he pulled on that, you know, classmate of his was pretty was pretty toxic, was pretty, uh, how should I put it, it, was awful. And it was sadistic and it was mean. And that's what you're talking about. At an early age, he's already demonstrating these features. And so primary versus secondary, all out for primary. And as far as the experiences that he had that, you know, some might arguably claim within the argument of nature versus nurture, oh, his mm -hmm. mom was mean to him. The reality is, is that most people that have had these experiences transcend them. They do something different with, with those experiences. They, they vow to become different. They vow to not do that in their own lives. And then there's a handful of people that maybe whether they'd had these experiences or not, in some cases, maybe they didn't even need to have these experiences. They still had an attraction to power, to pulling one over on other people, to hurting mm -hmm. other people and dominating them. So you, you can't really lay this at the feet of an abuse excuse. And, and I don't think he really even goes there particularly, yeah. which I was, I was pleased to see. Um, but at the same time, he's, uh, he's something makes, else. Makes really. him all the more, makes him all the more evil, really. I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there's, you know, I, my book that I just published uh, last month or had published last month is called Evil Thoughts, Wicked Deeds. He's not in it, but certainly there could be a chapter on him. Um, within the book because, uh, you know, he's he's one of the worst of the worst. And I've got a, a number of those folks and he yeah. certainly would qualify for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we deal with a lot of inmates. I know in your career, I, I'm very sure that you've dealt with a lot of violent offenders. And I was um, I was I, I want to cut you off right there. I was impressed with your interview because it was so clear that you have dealt with a lot of inmates. Oh, thank you. You, you. you took a lot of his B.S., and then I'm like, I, I wrote down some notes as I was listening to it, uh, you know, about, well, how does that explain this? And boom, you guys came back to it, man. I was impressed. Like the specifically, well, how did, how did you, how did this end up happening that you abducted her? Like, yeah. yeah. Know, he's, he's offering all these other excuses and then he's distracting and he's taking you down this, you know, this other path of, of distraction. Yeah. A lot, a lot of misdirection. Yeah. A lot of misdirection, which is the hallmark of the psychopath to tell all these you know, long-winded, sort of entertaining mm -hmm. narratives that never really answer your question. And I was impressed how you brought it back. But go ahead. You know, I, I had to jump in there because it was like I was so impressed with your obvious experience. Oh, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that that uh, compliment. But going on, uh, we deal with a lot of these people. I know you have as well. And they tend to play mind games. But I mean, Davis was very into the mind games and it's not so much that he's being clever or that he's a really intelligent person or anything like that but 
what do you think what do you think is behind that what do you think is with all his little games and hints and you know alluding to things what is that oh it's 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 gamesmanship it's manipulation manipulation is you know one of the hallmark issues with a psychopathic individual and it's something that's you know been well honed you know and perfected and practiced by him and it's second nature this is something that you know he's been in involved in the institutions since, you know, at least seventh, eighth grade, probably before that, getting in trouble and having to kind of worm his way out of it. And it's it's just a it's just a honed deal. He fashions himself, as you noted, I'm sure, a jailhouse lawyer, and he is well versed in a lot of law. He's not stupid. He's smart. Yeah. Um, he, he has followed it, tracked it, um, but it is part of his misdirection. It is his attempt to avoid answering the real questions. And the real questions, you know, are basic. You know, did you do this to Polly? Not what is the, you know, what does the the evidence show and what, you know, what did the FBI expert in Quantico say? We right. don't want to hear that stuff. That's all bullshit. Yeah. You know, the truth is, dude, what did you do? Not what did they prove or could they not prove? And that's where he draws you out, as they typically do, uh, a guy like him. And you got to bring him back or at least not be taken away like that. You weren't, you obviously saw that he wasn't answering the questions, Yeah. but it is a deft hand that he has. And it, and, and the objective is to obfuscate and avoid answering the real question, because here's the thing. He is a sex offender. Make no mistake about it. You don't abduct prepubescent girl without having a sexual motive under the conditions he had. He tries to offer and and kind of throw some spaghetti against the wall, yeah. you know, allu- alluding to some horrible stuff about the father, which is not true. Yeah. Um, it's lies. And, you know, that somehow this was a repayment for something or other. But yet, where did he start with that discussion? He started with that discussion with, I was in town looking for my mom so I could get some tools. I just got out of the joint, you know, and I want to get some tools. And well, how do you get from there to now you're there by implication or inference with what he's laying down that right. somehow you were doing a hit for somebody. It's all bullshit. It was like, he doesn't want to answer it. He's got to lay it out there because he knows within the institution, you know, mm-hmm. that's going to get some things to, for him, which is there's a lot of posturing that he does and that he has done historically, even in the courtroom when he gave the finger and act all like the tough guy uh, that is designed to stave off the fear that's there about what they do to people like him that have offended upon girls and, he, and, yeah, and children. He, yeah, he very much carries himself like a like a hardened convict, and that that's his persona. I mean, be it that he's adopted it or if he feels this is really, you know, what he is. I mean, his whole persona is wrapped around that he's, you know, a hardened felon convict and not that of a sexual predator or something of that nature was on on the lower totem pole of the prison life. And, um, yeah, I, I I did find that interesting that he, you know, I was in the neighborhood, I was high and, you know, well, and the high thing was never proved. That's a bunch of crap, you know, and then he starts bringing up river Phoenix and Viper room. And it's all like this, this sexy story, you know, that is designed to entertain and again, misdirect. And, uh, you know, none of us were really sucked into it because at the end of the day, how do you get from there to going inside a house, grabbing a girl, Mm -hmm. um, an innocent child, 
and then taking her with you for what? To do what? And, yeah. uh, you know, we know, you know, how, how she was found um, and so forth. And so those become problematic issues, you know, for him to overcome. Very problematic issues for him to overcome. And that, and that's what's interesting is he doesn't deny abducting Polyclass. He doesn't deny murdering Polyclass. However, when we go back to the interview, we hear in, in lesser crimes and in lesser parts of the situation, he minimizes things. He's like, oh, I'm a sexual predator because I tied these people up and I, you know, I had this assault. Brushed uh, against them. Brushed yeah. against them. Just yeah. like a father that's, you know dealing with their own children. Why don't you ask the jury this? I mean, it's just garbage. Yeah. And it's no wonder, you know, that his, uh, that his lawyer, you know, wouldn't pursue any of that stuff because it's, you know, it's nobody's buying it. No, it's a moot point. Yeah. It's, it's moot. And in your own mind, it may give you plausible deniability, you know, when you get, you know, in front of a, in, in the institution, but he is a, he is a sex offender. This was a sexual homicide. And, and aside from that, he's focusing all his energy on that penetration, you know, either anally or vaginally or whatever, you know, would be considered the only sexual gratification a sexual offender would get. And there's right. plenty of them that will just simply masturbate, you know, without even doing any of those things or engage in other autoerotic activity that is sexualized. But there is no explanation, you know, for him grabbing her that is that is believable other than what you know he was convicted of which it speaks for itself right so do you believe that davis believes what he says or that he knows that he's full of shit and he's just trying to that he thinks that he can manipulate people pull the wool over people's eyes or or maybe he's just you know knows that he's full of shit and he's just getting a kick out of it what do you think well, he knows that he's full of shit. I mean, he's yeah. not crazy. He knows he's full of shit. He thinks he's smarter than other people and can outwit them. And he's just, he's not going to give it up. He's just not because there's nothing to be gained for him. Yeah. You got to recall, this is not a guy that, you know, at the end of your interview, he made a very telling statement that, that was just so important about the lack of remorse that he has. Any remorse, you asked him? I don't have no remorse. I don't have no compassion. So it's like, so then what, what motive is there for him to do anything other than that, which is self-serving? You heard him laughing at different points when he's yeah. describing terrible things, you know, like the nailing down of, of people's feet in that um, what sounds like a, a multiple a, homicide yeah, 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 in the marijuana place. And then he talked when you asked him about, you know, hammer and nails. Again, he, he kind of danced with you about it, threw down. Yeah, I've used a hammer and nails. And he talked about animals, implying that he has hammered and nailed animals somehow um, and mm. hurt them, again, is like a tease. You know, I, I don't know the answer as to whether he, whether anybody else was ever charged or held accountable for those, those deaths that, he, that, that you guys were talking about, but he would be up on my list for sure, you know, laying out stuff like that. I mean, you asked him point blank, and, you know, this is a guy that could have other people that he's killed, and, you know, we'll never know about them unless there's something for him to gain from it. But, uh, it was quite a story that he told you. Um, there were truths, there were lies, um, and it was very similar to the story that he told police after after uh, his arrest. Yeah, um, and he's got kind of sticking to that, you know, some of that stuff, uh, you know, and so forth. But the negative stuff he says about Mark and 
you know, what she allegedly said, it just doesn't ring true. And it's just, it's sadistic. It's, it's mean. And again, he's, he's an asshole. I mean, there's no other way of getting around it. He, he is that that's the non-clinical verbiage, you know, for this <laughs> kind of individual, really. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, you can dress it up nice and say he's uh he's an antisocial personality, he's psychopathic. He doesn't care about anybody. He's narcissistic and he's mean. We're kind of putting lipstick on a pig and, yeah. uh, and, and he's a, he's a, he's a bad person. And, uh, Davis, he's proven he cannot function in society. It's not that we're, <laughs> we're pontificating or anything here. Davis no. cannot, he cannot function in society. And, right. uh, what's funny is, is we've talked to him before and we've brought up the whole three strikes thing. And, uh, we, and we did in the interview as well. And he, yes, he, did. he kind of, uh, I don't know. Every time we bring it up, he's just like, oh, yeah, no, that they, they just kind of used my case as a as a political thing during all that. And he was like, I, I didn't you know, I didn't invent three strikes, but he's commonly associated with it. And why do you think he doesn't want that association to the law? I don't know. It, it's in a way it's kind of out of character for him. Yeah, <laughs> there has to be some reason he doesn't want to be blamed for it. it Maybe it's because others in the institution you know, might hold it against him that are three strikers that are stuck there. It could be as simple as that, that he doesn't want to get the, the blowback from it. It's it's something selfish, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for sure. Because I've I've met with other offenders, like um, in my book, I talk about Joseph Paul Franklin, the guy that shot Larry Flint, but you know, he mm-hmm. was good for killing 23 other people in, in, in racially motivated assassinations and killings and synagogue bombings. Mm-hmm. And he was from, he was operating from 77 to 1980. And that was, you know, around the time or maybe even before the time that serial killer, the words were um, coined. Right. And when I met with him, he said, uh, he says, I don't even like the term serial killer. I like the term multiple slayer. But he liked to, to kind of claim that serial killer was invented because of him. You know, so there's that bragging about, yeah. you know, about having an effect on the world. You almost would expect Davis to have said, "Yeah, three strikes was because of me." Exactly the 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 grandiose sense of self uh, showing yeah. itself, you know. But I think I think that there's something else that's outweighing it. And my bet would be there's an awful lot of three three strikers that are in institutions, yeah. and the last thing he wants to be is the guy that's held accountable for that within the institution. That that would be my my primary bet as to why he he kind of poo poos that. Yeah. So. At the end of the day, what's there to be, what's there to be learned, and what's there to be said from from Davis? I mean, uh, I, is it just a, a a hallmark tale of there's bad fucking people out there, and I mean, it's just a matter of time before they do something violent to somebody before something like this. I mean, what really? What's the takeaway from this? Well, the takeaway is you look at the progression of the offenses he was committing. You know, that there was a number of other problems that he'd engaged in. I mean, there was the robberies, the other kidnappings. And when you start seeing that kind of pattern of escalation over time, you know, there's there's nothing, you know, he's not getting better. Yeah. And so and, and so the issue is, do you let a person like this out? And if you do, what level of leash is being placed on them and is the system really keeping them on the shortest leash possible in a sense that if there's one little glitch, one little violation, 
boom, you're back in, man. No, no, you don't, you don't pass go. You don't collect $200. You're out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, there's been way, you know, we're in California and we have real problems with, you know, some of the, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to get too political here, but right. you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat and I don't agree with a lot of the liberal policies that some of them have put in like Jerry Brown. Uh, before he left office, they made all these laws that led to the release of all these so-called nonviolent offenders. In there, in those definitions of nonviolent offenders, included people that would rape somebody while they were unconscious. Wow. The presumption being it can't be violent if they're unconscious. Yeah. And the the uh, and stalkers who have a high prevalence of, of violence. Uh, a good friend of mine is dealing with her case, and and part of the difficulty is the sentences become shortened and more lenient based upon those messed up definitions and the rush to let people out. So there are problems in the California system, as there are in other states, where people like Richard Allen Davis, who maybe shouldn't be paroled, and if so, need to be kept on the shortest possible leash. Would you say that Davis kind of slipped through the cracks or? It appears that, uh, slipped let me think um yeah. <laughs> yeah i think so and i and, and the sarcasm is really about i'm I, in my own mind i'm debating did he slip uh was there a massive whirlpool that sucked him out <laughs> and then people on the other side pushing him out i mean it's like right it's all that because this is a, this is not a candidate for rehabilitation no. and never and never has he shown the slightest bit of of reform or rehabilitation no. this this is not an ed kemper uh you know in the in the juvenile justice system manipulating his way out <laughs> that's not what happened with richard no. i mean no. he showed no attempt to reform yet here yeah. he was after multiple felony offenses back on the streets i think i mean th- that that does play a role in the confluence of events here, which I think people often ignore. They always look, they want to see the criminal and the psychological aspect and this and that, but there's always a confluence of events at at play. And there's always a lot of other factors to look at. Yeah. I mean, you you take a look at when did his criminal offending start? Age 12 was his first contact with law enforcement for burglary. And then you look at how that progressed over time and he ends up arrested for parole violation in like 75, you know, he's paroled. And then, you know, within a month, it may be a little bit over a month, that's when he abducts this woman yeah. and attempts to sexually assault her. So it's like, really, I mean, you know, you're, you're kind of done, you know, and then yet he's out, he's paroled in 1982, 84, boom, he's pistol whipping a woman, forcing this person to withdraw money from her bank account. I mean, that's a robbery. Yeah. Uh, You know, Robert, you know, another robbery in 85. So it's not going good at all for his rehabilitation. And and he served half of his 16 year sentence for the kidnapping of the woman that they forced her to withdraw money from her bank account. I mean, it's like this is why? Why is he out? So June 27th is when he's paroled. This kidnapping and murder takes place October. So. July, August, September, October, within four months when he shouldn't even have been out at all, should not have been out. Yeah, it's just all in all, the the whole thing is uh, it just leads to tragedy. Just Richard Allen Davis being out free in the public. It, there's nothing good can come from it ever. And uh, 
I mean, I'm not a fan of the death penalty, but I'm I'm definitely not going to advocate for Richard Allen Davis anytime soon. As far as the death penalty is concerned, Richard Allen Davis, in my mind, is a front of the line guy. I mean, uh, you know, this is a guy that has all the requisite credentials to deserve to be at the front of that line when they started back up. I wouldn't argue. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be out there picketing for him. Dealing with these criminals, we hear everything and you get an emotional response, but some evoke much more of an emotional response than others. And Davis is just one of those people. He's just that shitty of a human being that you just yeah. talking to him and knowing that he's he's still around just kind of makes your blood boil just a little it, bit, you know? It does. And when people talk about that whole death penalty, capital punishment debate, this is the kind of reaction that the true people that deserve that fate will evoke yeah. in, in normal people. It's, it's, um, it's repugnant, it's, it's despicable, and it's just like the world is a better place without somebody like him. Yeah, I think I think hearing this interview, people can can really on a on a sociological level like that in regards to the death penalty and things like that, they can really experience, like you say, it's it's just genuine evil. It really is what yeah. it is. And it's yep. I mean there's nothing to do with him. There's really nothing to do with him. He's a waste. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up. Chris, I know you have a new book out. Uh what's what's your your book and, and where can people get it? Um, the book is a true crime book based upon a lot of cases that I've worked throughout my career. It's called Evil Thoughts, Wicked Deeds. You can get it at all the usual places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, it's out there. Uh, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Chris Mohandi. And if you're in California or any of the places I travel or you want to send it to me, I'll sign it for you. Um, it's, um, I'm very proud of the book. I, I worked on it with a guy named Brian Skoloff, who is a writer for Associated Press, uh, but make no mistake, it's me writing. He kept me on track, though, and <laughs> helped me immensely. Um, but there's 10 chapters. The first chapter is kind of an introduction. The last is a wrap-up of what we can do, what we can learn from all this stuff to better our society, keep ourselves safe. And then each chapter is a different type of offense or crime that I've handled. Uh, hostage negotiation, um, serial killers, including the angel death case that I worked down in Glendale, California. Uh, violent true believers like uh, right. Joseph Paul Franklin, uh, mass casualty shooters, uh, stalkers, delusional offenders, and false victims like the Smollett case uh, are are within this book. It's uh, the people are, that have read it are loving it, and uh, I'm grateful that um, somebody supported me in doing it. And thank you for letting me mention it. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I, I can't wait to read it myself. I'm probably going to jump on Amazon and, and order a copy as soon as we're done here. But uh, we really appreciate you taking some time and coming on and, and discussing the topic with us and, and giving your, your professional insight. And uh, it's, it's very valuable. And, and we thank you. Thank you so much. Again, your questions are awesome and your approach is great. And uh, it was uh, I'm super grateful to have been on your show. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Chris Mahandi.